Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Tasha Robinson. And Keith Phipps. Our co-host Genevieve Kosky is taking a break this week, but she'll be back again soon. On last week's show, we talked about writer Charlie Kaufman and director Michel Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which used the science fiction premise of a procedure that could erase memories of past relationships to express the value of even painful experiences. This week, memory is again the theme of Reminiscence, the new sci-fi noir about the mysteries memory can help us solve about ourselves. Written and directed by Lisa Joy, one of the co-creators of HBO's Westworld, the film takes place in a future where climate change has left Miami permanently flooded, and the daytime temperatures are so extreme that people mostly come out at night. Hugh Jackman stars as Nick Bannister, a veteran who runs a business that allows people to relive specific memories. Memories that Nick and his partner Emily, another veteran, played by Tandiway Newton, can see as they're guiding his clients through them. One evening, a mysterious woman named May, played by Rebecca Ferguson, comes into the clinic with a seemingly basic request to have Nick find her missing keys. After the first session, Nick and May embark on a romantic relationship, but when she disappears suddenly, Nick starts to learn there's more to her life than meets the eye, and he's going to have to revisit other memories to figure out what's going on. We'll figure it out ourselves, possibly, after the break. began to rise and war broke out. Nostalgia became a way of life. There wasn't a lot to look forward to. So people began looking back. Nothing is more addictive than the past. No, 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 put me back. Put me back. I understand. She's moved on and you should too. People don't just to find where she'd gone, I had to know where she'd been. Was she running from the past? Or racing back towards it? How much did you really know her? How much did you know? Who was she? Who was she when not with me? 
You think you want answers? Well, you don't. Where is she? Where is she? Uh, so what did everyone think of the hit film Reminiscence? <laughs> hmm. Wow. Not a hit. Definitely not a hit. Keith and I were in the same screening, and I felt like we both walked out of it feeling pretty positive. Not like this is going to be a blockbuster success and it's going to rock the world, and definitely not that eternal sunshine level, I've just seen something unique. But we both uh, walked out, as I recall, kind of like, yeah, that was a, that was a pretty enjoyable movie. And boy, we seem to be on the, the high end with that response. Of, uh, yeah, I'm a little more measured. I, 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 thought it was, I thought it was interesting. It definitely had a lot of, in, in some, a lot of interesting ideas swimming around. I, I'm not sure at all. I did, wasn't sure at the time if it all came together. I'm less sure now. But it's definitely not a film that deserves to be uh, instantly, instantly <laughs> forgotten from the, <laughs> from the cultural memory, uh, scrubbed as if uh, there was some kind of lacuna involved. Yeah, I think the I think the negative reviews have been a bit over the top because there there are a lot of interesting and salvageable aspects of this film, even though I it didn't really work for me as well as it should. It, in fact, the a lot of the frustrations I had with it, as well as the things I like about it, are things that it shares with Westworld. <laughs> it is uh, really interesting to look at. It's conceptually striking. I think the world of the film is really cool. <laughs> you know, it's just the idea of setting it in Miami where people have to come out at night gives that kind of the, the whole South beach art deco vibe is just immediately transformed mm-hmm. quite smoothly into, a, uh, into noir, into a sort of a modern noir. So I'm on board with, with all of that. But I think that the plot is something that you're supposed to, that is supposed to kind of bring you through a world, the world of the film. I mean, that's, that's why these kind of dense plots exist to kind of, to kind of serve as a kind of an escort into the future that the film envisions. And, and to me, that's where it falls short. I think it, it's not as compelling. It's not as, it doesn't feel emotionally in, invested. There's a coldness to it and kind of a, a mannered quality to it. Um, that kept me at a distance, I would say. And so did, I, I, I don't think the central romance really works. There's no, there's no heat there at all. To it's one of the things where it's, it's two very attractive people, and and you know we're we're told that they're they're in love with one another, or at least or at least he's desperately in love with her. As the film, you know, is it plays with whether or not she returns those feelings. But I, I never really felt uh, the spark there that you, that you would want. The structure of the film, I think, works against any attempt to to make that relationship feel like it works, to make it feel yeah. romantic, because fundamentally, Hugh Jackman and Rebecca Ferguson fall into a relationship and then she disappears. And he is convinced that something terrible must have happened because their love is so deep and true that there's no possible way that she could have just left him. And then he spends most of the movie just constantly finding out that she wasn't the person he thought she was. No, it probably was all fake, but he he continues on undimmed. And so he looks like a patsy for most of the movie. I mean, it it is very effectively a, a science fiction neo-noir where she functions as the femme fatale who kind of comes into his life, seduces him in, and then retreats. And when he chases after her, he finds out that there are terrible things going on in her life and he tries to solve her problems. And, you know, it's sort of the mystery of the movie, whether she did that on purpose, whether she wants him following her or solving her problems, what she felt about him, if anything whatsoever. And when you kind of find out the answer to that in the end, it comes in a way that just doesn't feel very satisfying. It doesn't feel like 
either an emotional payoff or fully a payoff for the plot. So I think this movie just has uh, basically structural problems that it's it's not going to be able to overcome. But within all that, like so much noir, like so much neo-noir, uh, it's very stylish. Yes. And very memorable, uh, very visually interesting, and just very emotional in a, a deep, dark, sad kind of way. The destruction of the climate and the subsequent destruction of Miami, and it, it sounds like the world, just kind of hangs heavily over the story of this film. This is like somebody looking for comfort in a very sad and dark place where there just really isn't a whole lot of hope. And I think that ends up coming through in the movie a lot more clearly than than any sense of nostalgia that we're supposed to share with Hugh Jackman's character or any sense of like romance or investment in the relationship we're supposed to share with him. One of the issues to me, too, is like you find out enough about this world to wish you knew more. Right. Like because I think that the problems of these two people literally do not amount to a hill of beans in, mm. in this, you know, in this world. Right. I mean, I think I think my mind is immediately drawn to like, okay, there's a civil war. Wow, that's interesting. This machine, too, was it was and is used for other purposes than to have people relive memories, which could be comforting and stimulating in a way. It's also used as an interrogation technique is used for malevolent purposes as well. That's interesting. Kind of want to know more about that. It was kind of like that for me. And it, it, it's it, Westworld is, it can be that way too, where you're just like, where you're just like you have the, this incredible world that you've established that looks great. Show me something more compelling. And, and, and there's something so mannered, I guess, about reminiscence, uh, uh, about the presence of Rebecca Ferguson as, as the femme fatale. I mean, everything feels like it's in quotes. There's not a lot of like genuine emotional investment going on in any part of this film. It all feels very, you feel really distanced from it in a way that is not entirely intended, I think, on the part of the movie. I mean, it's uh, the same problem in Westworld. It just, it, it's lugubrious. It's mm-hmm. very... Very pretty, but uh, there's just always sort of a sense of, you know, pick up the pace a little bit. Like, Westworld has a tendency to wallow in its darkest emotions and its darkest imagery and its darkest moments. Just this sort of feeling of humanity is awful. Like, look at all the awful things that they've done. But then as a result, there are times when it's just like, okay, well, we, we get that. You can move forward now. And in the same sort of place, I feel like this movie just kind of at times bathes in its own bathos. And yes. there's just not a sense of, you know, okay, we we understand it. You're obsessed. It's not healthy. Your assistant, played by a much more capable and, uh, you know, world-wise person, keeps pointing out to you the exact same thing over and over and over. And it's kind of tiresome. Move on, bud. And I, and I, th- I think I, what surprised me watching is like, how did the script reader, reader even get past the first page of the script? Because the first pa- that, that opening narration where, where Hugh Jackman is talking about memory as like beads in, in the necklace of time, and it's like, the, no, you've got to get, you can't do this. You've got to get rid of the script. This yeah, is that's dreadful. Too, this is grim. But at the same time, it's also an you know attached to this awesome shot. I mean, like I, mm-hmm. I so desperately wanted to learn more and inhabit this same world with just with a different story it's like <laughs> like just like i like the idea i think conceptually it's so smart i mean like yeah the, the idea that miami could exist in some form being that you know waterlogged but also just the idea of 
of Art Deco South Beach being such a natural for noir. I thought that was all smart, you know, and you just kind of wish that kind of intelligence and weight, weight, a good kind of weight would carry over the rest of the movie, but it's, it's kind of a bad kind of weight. It, it, the, the film feels like a, a pretty heavy meal that is still not that nutritious. <laughs> That's a horrible the, uh, but... <laughs> the opening moments made me feel like it was influenced by the, uh, uh, the version of Blade Runner with, with the narration, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. the really sleepy Harrison Ford narration, yeah. uh, uh, rather than the, the, the other cuts. I mean, it definitely has a, uh, it's a little it's a little like uh sand in the hourglass so are the days of our lives uh, mm-hmm. in, in terms of of theme but it's also a little uh all these moments will be lost like uh tears and rain yes mm-hmm. memories are perfect he said i don't even think that's even true I, you know he's perfect i don't I, you know the, the memories little... don't haunt the uh, the past doesn't haunt us if anything we haunt it okay i guess <laughs> I, yeah I, i'm not sure what what that metaphor means or what you're trying to get at there bud I think that the reason that the story feels that way, the the sense that there are more interesting stories going on elsewhere, is that the fine details in this movie are really interesting. Mm -hmm. I kind of love that you find out sort of in passing that Newton and Jackman's business helping people remember things, uh, I want to say we can remember for you wholesale uh, in a Philip K. Deck vein, is just a really fly-by-night operation with some shoddy equipment. You know, we, we get just this... In a space that's clearly built for something else, they yeah. kind of retrofit it. It's, uh, you know, something that it feels like they maybe bought it off a junk dealer and kind of like spun up this struggling business from it. But you get to see, in addition to all of those other things that Scott mentioned about what else this technology is used for, you also see like what the rich can do with it in terms of, you know, plugging their their dying loved ones uh, into these machines so they can just like live forever in their happy memories. The way that the film deals with the military, I thought was really interesting. It's it's never foregrounded. It's never a big deal. But it's significant at a couple of different points that uh, Jackman and Newton's characters served together, you know, that they they have this bond of people who've been in military conflict together. And that recurs throughout the film, not just with them but with other people that they connect to because of that feeling of, of having been in the wars together, of having been in service service together. And it's not a major theme of the film. It's just a really consistent detail that I think helps this world feel real and lived in. Yeah. Can you, it doesn't even suggest what the dividing lines might have been. You know, I mean, this is a civil war, right, that they were fighting in? I, they, I don't think they ever say civil war. They say the wars. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, okay. it suggests to me that, uh, you know, probably America went to war in the Middle East to preserve access to oil. Possibly there were wars in different parts of the country, certainly over land as you coastal give land disappeared. Another shot. You know, oh, you can't God. just you can't just give that one up. You gotta go. Gotta this time. This time will be different. But, I, I think uh, it's great that the movie doesn't address that. Uh, yeah, no, may, maybe not. I, I, I think just generally, I wanted. I, maybe, you know, I don't necessarily need the movie to explain how, how the world came to be as it is. I think I just wanted a better story to take place in that <laughs> environment period. And, and one that I think could have revealed that world in a little more detail. You don't need to have, you know, a backstory told to you. That's not really what I would want, but it seemed, it still seemed to me that 
the story that was being told was rather puny in nature and almost didn't take advantage of this technology and its potential, really, right? I mean, like all these other little stories that we see, you know, the other clients that we see go in to pay for this service, they have different kinds of stories and different, and that might be as interesting or more interesting than the one we end up sticking with, right? I mean, like the, I guess what a woman who's, who's like, who's with her, um, deceased lover or something, right? Or a ex-husband or something. It's something where she relives that same memory over and over again. And she says something effective of how, you know, when they offered just to give it to her, she says that she needs to feel that, feel all that in the machine. It's just like, there's something a little bit, you know, eternal sunshiny about that little story thread that I maybe long for a more, you know, authentic emotional experience than we experience, than we get here. But wait, that, I mean, the woman that you're talking about is a big part of the story. Like, we find out that that man that she wanted to be with was uh, was the rich guy who died. And Oh, right. Okay. Well, she's got his kid and all that stuff. It, yes, every, everything's connected. But I mean, I think at that moment, though, you can kind of imagine something different. I just, you know, it just didn't. Yeah, it just it, it, it all felt too mannered to me. And that, you know, from the, the, the songs that she was saying, just her status as a as kind of a chanteuse, it just it, it was just all very stylized it felt like the characters were were part of the decor yeah but i mean to me that comes out of the the noir roots like the idea of her being a singer which is uh sort of like Hayes code era uh being a prostitute you know she basically dolls herself up and sells her image to men and it's sort of you know it's it's beautiful because she makes art but it's terrible because she's selling herself like all of those sort of encoded ideas of like who the lounge singer is that has kept that character coming up in cinema over and over and over for <laughs> like uh, coming up on a century now at this point. It felt a little cliche. You know, I did have a slightly hard time not thinking of who framed Roger Rabbit during yes. her big uh, Chanteuse <laughs> scene. Um, but even so, you know, it's I, I think it's meant to be mannered because it's it's meant to be like leading you through like, you know, this is the future version of this storyline that we all know so well. Yeah, I mean, it's very aware of itself as a noir right down to the to the shady gangster that the, that necessitates a trip over to New Orleans. And then, you know, the, the rich family that's insulated from from consequences. I mean, I, I like the way it drew all that in and, and kind of showed them as as sort of. Uh, eternal noir noir features. I think I think we are I think we're I think we are kind of right in pinpointing the actual narrative itself and then the characters as um, as sort of the, the main problems with this, with this film, which which does get a lot conceptually it has a lot go- going for it. I'm curious how you two processed Hugh Jackman's character because you know in in keeping with the the noir theme like the theme of the protagonist being kind of a patsy who's getting led around by the nose and everybody else knows more than him is a, a time-honored tradition and we see that here and and those patsy characters are often people who you sort of feel for because they're going through rough stuff while not necessarily thinking that they're particularly smart or particularly good at what they do. You know, you you want them to get to the end of their journey and maybe figure out how they've been played and then do do better next time, but you don't necessarily think of them as heroes exactly. Here, uh Hugh Jackman's character for me just kind of stretched over the line into not quite a stalker, but uh, like a little bit of that creepo vibe. Like she's moved on. She doesn't need you chasing her down 
asking everybody who's ever touched her questions uh, and throwing everybody else's life off kilter. Like he violates a lot of privacy along the way. And I kept thinking as I was watching, like, there's definitely viewers that are going to see this character as a romantic, a, a deep romantic who cares about this troubled woman and will do anything to protect her and is just like an unvarnished hero. And I'm, I'm not that person. I'm, I don't know many people that are, but I, like, can you, can you see him as like the heroic character in this story? Can you, how do you feel about him? I think he's a standard. Noir <laughs> detective with with not a, not a whole lot of extra thought put into it uh, beyond hiring Hugh Jackman, which is usually a pretty good idea, and, and it's fine here. But but uh, um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely here. It's a recycled Raymond Chandler type. Mm. Does he seem like a down and dirty enough guy to be playing a role like this? No, you know? he doesn't. You know, yeah, he's, he's, yeah. I mean, there's something kind of like too movie starish or big about him i mean he's not he doesn't he's not a humphrey bogart type <laughs> at all i mean he's just he's uh too much in control of himself and his emotions to uh to really come off as somebody who is vulnerable and obsessed and kind of creepy and like just there's something too squeaky clean i guess about hugh jackman that makes him kind of a little bit off of this role for me. You kind of want, want like a Peter Sarsgaard type in there or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, some, yeah, exactly. Some somebody like that. I mean, there are uh, yeah, definitely plenty of people who could have played this role. And this almost kind of like, yeah, I just I, I, you almost didn't can't believe he would be the type to act as impulsively as he does with May. You know, again, just because he's just too too much of a straight hour. Yeah, I think you have to buy like a lightning bolt of of, of love and passion that that uh, that you know overwhelms all of his better judgment. You don't really get that. No, I can sort of see him as uh, an idealist, as a frustrated idealist in a world that doesn't support idealism at all. And I can sort of believe that he, like, he fell into this relationship. I kept I, Sin City is the other movie that. Uh, maybe the comic came to mind more than the movie because the movie's hey, not this great. This is two episodes in a row we talked about Sin City. I know, right? It's a, it's a connection we should have saved for connections. Uh, but that sort of obsession with, I can believe that people living in this crap sack world would hold on to something that brought life into their lives, you know, that brought color into their lives. I can more or less believe him as the character that he's playing. He's maybe too healthy for it. You know, spend, given the amount of time he spends uh, shirtless in the tank, it's it's kind of clear that he's got a body that he buffed up for superhero films as opposed to the body of somebody, uh, you know, living out of uh, fast food containers and, you know, not very much food illicitly grabbed between jobs. But, uh, you uh know, as a soppy romantic, I can kind of believe him. I like that you brought the word crap sack back into into the podcast because that was that was the, kind of a standout word from your review of this film. <laughs> I was like, it's a crap sack future. Uh, I picked that up from TV tropes. It's actually a very common term for uh, like stories, TV film stories with terrible futures, and I just think it's so evocative. <laughs> you know, this is a crap sack world. This is a crap sack future. Don't you feel like sometimes TV tropes is in the business of coining terms versus like defining them though? I think it's in, it's it's defining them and giving them names that you immediately recognize. Yeah, uh, I, okay. I think that that's one of the services it provides. Is like we all know that trope where somebody takes a hit to the head and loses their memory, 
what do you call that thing? And giving us all a term that we can share. Like we all, we all know about uh, like dark, gritty stories where everybody's sad and there's not a lot of hope because you're in the future and everything's come apart. But like slapping the label crap sack world on it gives us a language we can all speak together. <laughs> no, I think you, you definitely know what kind of world it is when you call it crap sack. Um, I, I, think, I think, you know, as far as the other part of this romance goes i think rebecca ferguson is quite good and quite well well cast and and there's just a kind of she's just very you know you know evocative of of that exact type of role that she's she's playing there is something kind of there's kind of an old school vivaciousness and and enigmatic quality i guess to her um, that makes her well suited for that role. I just th- thought the two of them together didn't make a lot of s- make as much sense as I wanted. But I think the problem was him. Yeah, I I think she's very glamorous and uh, very very convincing as somebody who's consciously playing a role and uh, trying to sell herself to somebody uh, and kind of changes that role depending on on where she is. I also think uh, Tindy Wayne Newton is great in this movie as she is mm, yeah. in so many things. And she's great in Westworld too, so which is, you know, I guess why she's deployed here by Lisa Joy. Yeah, certainly. But I, I feel like here she's given much less to chew on. I honestly think that this movie was uh, influenced so much by Strange Days that mm. it, it feels like her character was just kind of slapped in here to be the... Um, the Angela Bassett of this movie. And I, I want better things for her. Uh, I want better things for her character than moping around after this uh, drippy guy who just doesn't really see her at all. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe season two of reminiscence will give you more of uh, <laughs> <laughs> that character. Uh, it'll be, it'll be, you know, if, it, if this were actually not a movie and on HBO, then, uh, even with the reaction it's gotten, you, you feel like this would be get the get the green light for the second season, uh, just based on the world building part of it alone. Uh, Westworld is still three seasons and still going. So anyway, well, well, we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between Reminiscence and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Well, you tell me something I've been wondering about. Before you performed last night, you were crying. Why? That was my memory. Shouldn't you have just seen the things I was looking at? Close your eyes. It's a little demonstration to answer your question. So, you have a boyfriend or someone you're involved with? What is that? Answer the question. Eyes closed. No, I'm not involved right now. And for the purposes of this experiment, we'll use something more elemental. Your first kiss. Picture that moment. Charlie Mulvaney. Okay. The way young Charlie approached. And the kiss itself. Not just the beginning. The whole kiss. Until the moment you break away. And by the end, you saw yourself as well as him, didn't you? Happens with everyone. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. 
well, the, the the big thing they have in common, and the, and the reason probably why we did this pairing, is the theme of memory, and the way it's filtered through you know the science fiction genre in different ways. This is this is uh, reminiscence is more of a science fiction noir, and Eternal Sunshine more of a science fiction romance. But uh, Keith, what do you what, what do you make of this theme? I mean, if you if you compare them, I think I think you get a sense that Eternal Sunshine actually, I and mean, obviously these are these are different, uh, while loosely in the same genre, are very different films. But I think Eternal Sunshine has a take on what memories are and what they mean and how they influence one's personality and uh, what makes them important. Where Reminiscence, it it's, it feels like it's more just uh, it's just a, a plot device in, in a way. It's it's, it's there's not really be uh, too much of an emotional component to it beyond the um, somewhat d- d- dementia adult um, um, wealthy woman who keeps reliving her uh, engagement and you know does so in a, in a clock repair place. So I think you're supposed to bring to mind Miss Havisham from from, from Great Expectations. Uh, you know I think there you kind of get an idea of how memories uh, affect anyone emotionally. But that's, and, and you do get people talking about it, like, like, the, like Angela Serafian, who we talked about is, is reliving a pleasant memory with, with her lover. It turns out to be, you know, play an important role in the uh, film it, itself. Um, but I think it's more talk, it's more talked about than felt, whereas Eternal Sunshine really makes you feel it. Yeah, I think it's interesting that both of these films are kind of fundamentally center on a man who's trying to retreat into memory in one case more literally than the other. But in both cases, these memories uh, that are being explored have their ups and downs. They have their good side and their bad side. And in both cases, the man is kind of consciously choosing to ignore the bad side and ignore the the problems and the questions of the relationship uh, in order to focus on the the brighter, lighter memories. And I think that's something we all do or you know try to do um i think sometimes the the darker stuff haunts us and is hard to exercise but i think both of these films do kind of like tap into a very real thing about memory about you know the way we we hang on to certain specific moments um both both of these films just kind of fetishize that experience of being alone with somebody that you love and just having a quiet moment just being together um, both of them just kind of make that a really important and central thing. I think it's interesting that neither one of them, you know, there's a sex scene in uh, Reminiscence, there's implied sex in uh, Eternal Sunshine, but for both of them, like the act of just quietly being with your lover just seems to be the the memory that pins down these relationships, the memory that both of these men rely on to define their love. One thing I think is a point of contrast between the two in terms of memory is I think that in uh, Eternal Sunshine, the memories aren't fixed in the way they, they seem to be in Reminiscence. In Reminiscence, he's going through memories that are going to try to help him solve a puzzle. You know, these are things that are happening. These are, these are perfect beads on the uh, necklace of time that he is kind of going through. In Eternal Sunshine, memories are quite are changing the fact that that they're being erased, uh, actively erased. There's that part of it. But then there's also the part of Joel revisiting these moments that may be painful for him in one instance when he's reflecting upon a relationship that did not work. These memories that, that were of the great times that they had together, perhaps sour when, when relationship also goes sour. 
but then you can look at them again from the distance of, of time or from another perspective and they take on a, a different meaning. So I think there's kind of a, a real sense of eternal sunshine wrestling with the significance of memory in terms of building as kind of the building blocks of what make us who we are and, and, uh, you know, ha- having a complicated relationship with memories, uh, that, that isn't really a part of reminiscence. And what, what makes it particularly odd is that, is that that is, that's Westworld. I mean, Westworld is, that is the, that's the primary theme of Westworld about memories of, of uh, being the construct of being the building blocks of, of humanity. I mean, that's what kind of makes the androids in Westworld more human than the, the humans because they they're because they they do have all these these memories that they can they, they can build upon and that give give them dimension. And I, and I feel I feel like that level of exploration is is a little bit absent in, in reminiscence, despite you know having this machine being a, a big important part of it. I think that's why we can all agree that TV shows are better than movies. <laughs> right? Is that why no. we're uh, pivoting this to uh, your next TV show? <laughs> yeah. I do think that there's just more of an interest in subjectivity in Eternal Sunshine. I Part of that is because the, the memories are breaking down. Uh, so you have these, you know, visions of, of moments and memories colliding and uh, kind of melting into each other. But I also think that that's much more how we actually remember things. You know, in, in Reminiscence, it's a big plot point that even if you don't consciously remember something, it's recorded on your brain in grams like so thoroughly that, for instance, you can find out like where your lost keys are. Even if you didn't notice dropping them, some super uh, observant part of you picked up like every object that's under that dresser or everything that was sitting on top of that table. And uh, the technology can recreate it with perfect fidelity. I don't, I don't think that's really how memory works. It's, it's good for the story, but uh, I, I doubt that most of us, you know, put into a memory regurgitation machine would be like, Oh yes, I remember the titles of every book on that shelf. uh, Cause I glanced at it briefly. And what a strange kind of twist here, incidentally, about, I mean, the fact is, you know, in in Reminiscence, we can see the memory, the memory is projected. And so Hugh Jackman is also a voyeur in that situation. He's, he's peering into a private, into private moments in in a person's life. And and of course, he doesn't want to watch that stuff. You know, he's embarrassed when she, when Rebecca Ferguson is unashamed to just kind of like you know, take off her clothes because she's like, you're going to see that anyway. But when, when, when it's projected, he turns away. It's like, uh, you think about like, what would Brian De Palma do? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it'd be a very different film, but I mean, like there's a whole voyeuristic it's never aspect. never a good rubric for a movie. But there's a, there's, a, there's a voyeuristic, there's a voyeuristic aspect to the way these memories are projected and in, in the way other people, not just the person ha- with the memory can engage and, and, and know uh, what these memories are that's really not explored at all by the film. Oh, I disagree. I I think that moment where Hugh Jackman kind of forces himself into the, the memory projection device in -hmm. order to place himself in the position of the person who's actually re-experiencing the memory, like trying to be in a place. I, I think that this movie's really most interesting fundamental idea is that by, stealing other people's memories effectively he can 
be in places that he never was. He can mm. experience things uh, that he wasn't there for. And that moment when he sees her interacting with another man and like literally puts himself in front of her so he can pretend that she's speaking to him, singing to him, touching him, uh, that this memory is his memory or that it's not a memory at all and that it's actually happening. I, I think that's one of the movie's most interesting moments and certainly one of its most authentic emotional moments. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it just, it's really awesome. And conceptually, I, I still, the moment, it just didn't really work for me in the moment though that much. Yeah. That's, 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 yeah. I guess maybe that's the thing about there being that unfortunate disconnect between the way the film is conceived, which is quite pristine and uh, thoughtful, and then the way it is actually executed, which is which feels synthetic and not uh, feels synthetic and feels like not emotionally resonant. I guess um, there's just something it just needs a, a little bit of the, the the grit of human experience needs to kind of like find its way in a little bit more. Oh sure, it's very polished. It's certainly very. Uh... It's a very shiny crap sack world. It's a, a very it glossy version of a terrible future. Yeah, I, was, I mean, I was really excited to see it just based on the trailer, just because I thought the world of the film looked cool. And also, it wasn't based on previously existing IP. <laughs> I mean, like, mm. that, that's where my standards are these days. It's like, <laughs> oh, wow, a science fiction movie that looks really cool, that apparently appears to be not based on something. It's not like a re reworking of uh, Cinderella or something. Not a direct reworking, but as I alluded to earlier, uh, it it has so much in common with Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days. It yeah. just, it seems well, to draw the, so many elements of yes. the world, the technology, people's reactions, the characters, their reactions to each other, the use of music, like... There's just a lot there. And we, uh, to be on the table here, the reason that we're going to do a side episode about Strange Days is because it's just unavailable. Uh, yeah. you, you can maybe pick up a copy uh, on DVD at your local library or, you know, pay big bucks for somebody selling it used or whatever. But it's not streaming and it's not available on, on new media. So we felt like it would be unfair to do it as a pairing here. But while it isn't a, a direct like sequel or remake or reboot, it, it it doesn't feel like an original story to me. Uh, no, no, that's true. I mean, and, and, and of course, uh, you know, there are plenty of other influences as well. Uh, I mentioned I'd mentioned altered states too as being kind of a big one. And, and if you want to get even further, go even further back into into kind of you know experiential movies of that sort, you go to like Brainstorm, the uh, the Christopher Walken science fiction movie does the same kind of thing. And it, you know, but of course, the other thing with Strange Days and and reminiscences this is the drug element as well the idea of these memories becoming experiences that you get become addicted to and that that you can you could be trapped by and kind of they could be they have kind of a toxic influence in your life if you uh if you over if you overdo it i felt like there could have been more of that in this though it almost felt a little underplayed I mean, it's an interesting uh, contrast between Charlie Kaufman's stuck in my brain and I don't want to be there versus the way Reminiscence ends with, with somebody literally choosing to just be kind of permanently stuck in his own memories. Brainstorm is a really good comparison that I hadn't thought of. But yeah, that, that idea that nostalgia is a drug, nostalgia is, a, uh, is an addiction and that it can distort your present. Uh, by dragging you back into the past and making the past the only place you want to be, that that certainly does make sense. 
I, I, I love that I do a podcast with, <laughs> with people who are like, oh yeah, brainstorm, of course, brainstorm. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, that film is, is not the most uh, heavily watched film. Uh, uh, you know, I don't think a lot of people remember uh, brainstorm uh, like we might have. Uh, but I, I always thought the concept of brainstorm was so cool. You know, and I think it was, I think it was either shot in 70 or blown up in 70. And so you could like, you know, that those, you can go down that roller coaster in uh, 70 millimeter and, it's just like you're there. Uh, so what also, what also in terms of connections between these movies? I mean, well, one thing, one, one point of contrast uh, would be the style of these, these films. I mean, both of them and their approaches to genre too. I mean, these are both, these are science fiction movies uh, that are stylish in their own ways, but, but their approach to science fiction and their approach to style could not be more different. Yeah, I mean, we talked earlier about Gondry's uh, kind of not a lot of money on hand uh, approach to special effects. There's there's another sequence where Joel keeps turning around and every time he turns around, Clementine is storming out a different door and he's seeing her from behind. And that's one of the places in the movie that I, I definitely thought had uh, had been some kind of digital effect, but it was just accomplished with body doubles, you know, with with different people dressed the wow. same way, and uh, and the camera snapping back and forth as they as they storm outdoors, and contrast that with something that just like lives in the CGI place that's that's just drenched in it, and uh, it's it's definitely an interesting contrast, particularly in terms of what the larger world looks like. You know, Eternal Sunshine's larger world is a world where, you know, memory technology looks like sticking a colander on somebody's head. It's, <laughs> it's not high tech. It's not glitzy. Yeah, I think science fiction is definitely, definitely just a means to an end in, in Eternal Sunshine. And, and to some degree in reminiscence, too, you know, when you think about it. I mean, I, sure. I, I, like the, I really like the style of both of these films. I think, I think it, it suits the purposes of, of what each filmmaker is trying to accomplish well, you know, and, and, and the, it's, the look is consistent. I'm not going to talk about reminiscence being worse than eternal sunshine on, on that, on that front, because I think, I think visually it's where it needs to be, which again is the Westworld problem of just like that. The world of Westworld looks amazing. Always looks amazing. The world is so well conceived and you just wish that it's the other stuff that, that bothers you. And I think that was, that's the same. That's the case here with, uh, reminiscence which may you know maybe the issue if there's any issue style wise is, is that it could be a little bit too slick for its own good i mean i think about like there's a sequence uh, a shootout in the film that's set to some piece of music some piece of pop music do you remember what which one that would, would be mm -hmm. um where, where, where he's where hugh jackman's uh, face is being in a tank and uh Tandewee's newton's trying to trying to shoot him out of there yeah, I mean, I mean that that's a that's such a sequence out of Westworld to have you know, this kind of slow mo, very stylish shootout sequence to a pop song. Yeah, they all of course they did these kind of like in, in Westworld there are these uh, player piano renditions of of popular songs, and here it's like Tainted Love coming out of a, a, a jukebox, and it's fine. It's just it's a little it's all a little bit too familiar uh, at this point. We should talk a little bit about the the music in these two movies, if only to talk about how that the opening, the Montauk sequence on the train has this like jingly, whimsical soundtrack to it that's just like pure Michelle Gondry. Like coming coming across as though it's all a whole lot more playful than it is. Mm -hmm. uh, I like I I process those early meetings as like Clementine is desperate for attention she's bored uh she's 
you know, a Kaufman character. She's not un- she's not comfortable in her own skin or her own head. And she goes and bugs a stranger who's like flattered and excited to have a woman talking to him after the <laughs> after the uncomfortable and annoying voiceover at the beginning, which is something else they both have in common. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a very it's kind of a squirmy scene as he tries to overcome his natural awkwardness. And she just desperately tries to provoke a reaction out of him, which she keeps refusing. And the music over it is just like, it's like practically calliope music. It's so bouncy and and strange. Yeah. It's a, well, it's a John Bryan score. And of course, he did the same kind of thing uh, with Punch Drunk Love. Punch Drunk Love also oh, had sure. that, kind of, that kind of almost disturbing jauntiness to it. But the thing about it... Carnival-esque music. But the the thing about Eternal Sunshine is that that same score, when you get to a a main theme, is quite lovely. I mean, like, it's a really beautiful, beautiful score. So it kind of is... You kind of get both parts. You get get this this kind of unnerving jauntiness, but then it leads to something quite romantic, the the music. And, of course, I I really like that uh, the Beck cover that opens and closes the film too for it's uh, everybody's got to learn sometime who who is the uh who's the original uh, I, I had to look it up but it's it's the corgis which is a, a british band and the, the original is from 1980 they sound adorable and bouncy no Possibly. it's it's really really nice uh music as you would, would expect i mean like from michel gondry who's certainly knows his music and it was a good time i mean was was uh how far away was Beck from the the Golden Age at that point? That that album is would they, would they be pretty similar time periods? Those those the Eternal Sunshine and the Golden Age it feels like the Golden Age was maybe slightly was after, but, uh, but the but Golden Age was slightly. Mm, the Golden Age was considerably after. Uh, you're thinking of the other album, which is Sea Change. <laughs> we're we're no, definitely change. wandering oh, yeah, way right. off sea topic Forget here. It. It, yeah, uh, yeah, it, it was change. two years after Sea Change. Sea Change. That's what I'm, I'm not thinking. Of the Golden yeah. the Golden Age is the name of the a song that's on Sea Change. It's like the first track, right? And then there's the album Morning <laughs> Phase. Morning Phase is the album that basically sounds like Sea Change, but not as good. Although it won a Grammy. Yeah, Grammys. What are you going to do? They give them out to everybody these days, don't they? It's, it's true. Would you guys like to talk about some connections between these two, two films? Oh, right. Sure. Let's go back. <laughs> I know that I brought up music, but uh, I, I want to uh, jump suddenly and jarringly away from that topic uh, mm-hmm. in order to talk about another connection, which is the sudden jarring jumps that both of these movies have. Uh, both of them tell their stories asynchronously. Both of them get a lot of... I think energy out of unsettling the audience and making them a little unsure, like where and when they are uh, mm-hmm. by, by telling the story out of order and kind of requiring you to put the puzzle pieces together. And I think reminiscence, one of, one of my other favorite things about reminiscence is the way the memory technology is used to enable that kind of uh, asynchronous storytelling. Uh, I don't know that I need Lisa Joy to continue playing the Westworld. Like, when are we? Like, is this is this happening, or is this somebody's memory of something happening, mm-hmm. or is this somebody watching somebody's memory of something happening? Like, I could do fine without that game. It doesn't, I think, add a whole lot here, but it does mean that she can tell the story in the order that she wants it to, and I, I think that that's a useful thing for the way the story unfolds. Like, she doesn't have to rely on. Hugh Jackman's character finding people and and asking them and having them, you know, tell him about things that happened. She can just jump directly into it. But in 
Eternal Sunshine, it's it's much more of a puzzle box of a movie, given that you go directly from what seems like these characters meeting for the first time to this revelation that they're coming out of a relationship. And you don't know if you've just jumped forward in time. You, you later find out that you're jumping backward in time, which is not the first interpretation I think most people would have. I don't know. I mean, what do you think about how the the ways these stories are told out of order adds to the stories? I absolutely love the way Eternal Sunshine unfolds. I mean, it threw me for a loop. I don't think I even got it like the way I was supposed to the first time I, I, I saw it. I've been so I was, you know, obviously, you you know, you're, you're confused. And you're supposed to deliberately confused when Elijah Wood shows up at the beginning and kind of like rattles you and uh, you know you when you, you know and then, and then it's only later that you th- find out that you've that, that they're uh you know meeting each other for a second time i think that was i think that's all really strategically well well done and a big part of what makes the film as good as it is with reminiscence i think i i think you're right in that it it does do that westworld thing of pulling the rug out from under you again and again and again until you're like stop it <laughs> it's just please just stop but that first that first pull of the rug is really effective i mean you know it, when when suddenly you're already in this in this scene that seems a little bit off you know that feels a little like ahead of itself in terms of this in terms of where the relationship is at where the story is at and to have that yanked away and discover that this is all stuff that Hugh Jackman's character is reliving in the tank. I mean, that's effective, but you know, I think it's it's it becomes a wearying and not that pr- productive to kind of keep doing that kind of thing. Because um, I mean, I'm like, you're already kind of swimming in <laughs> the film anyway. It is not the cleanest piece of storytelling. There's a there's a lot going on. It's very very dense, and so you know, when you have all that density there to begin with, and then you're going to throw all of these kind of like time switches on people, it, it does not endear. I'm not sure it ever matters in reminiscence. I, I feel like I might have to watch it again to unravel that. And I don't feel a need to watch it again. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in Eternal Sunshine, it makes a huge difference to the story. The fact that they've met before and in a completely yes. different way than what you what you see. The fact that that opening incredibly uncomfortable sort of flirtation is maybe coming out of both of their like very, very latent memories or senses of deja vu or what have you about what they meant to each other. Like that explains a lot about why she seeks him out when he's a total stranger, what draws them together and kind of what, what pushes them to keep connecting. There's just, there's a lot of ways in which that makes a huge difference to the story. And I feel like with reminiscence, it's mostly just, these are the order that these scenes need to happen in and like, however we can justify doing these scenes. We'll, we'll just, we'll make it that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, one thing these films have in common is that they have kind of side romances or side feelings, I guess, that complicate the, the central romance. And in, in, uh, in Eternal Sunshine, there's, uh, of course, all a team lacuna, uh, which is full, full <laughs> where you have, uh, you know, Elijah Wood pursuing his own relationship with Clementine, borrowing all of uh, Joel's tricks. And then this triangle between uh, Kirsten Dunst, uh, Mark Ruffalo, and Tom Wilkinson. And then there's something, I suppose, here between uh, Tandewee Newton and Hugh Jackman, right? 
I think that's the explanation for why she keeps chasing him down and helping him, why she feels so incredibly hurt when he rejects her. Uh, just her whole affect when dealing with him. It feels like she's been carrying a torch for him for a while mm-hmm. and just knows that it's not going to be reciprocated, knows that there's no point in it, and also knows she's kind of a fool uh, for liking this, you know, sad sack who's who would much rather live in his memories. And the worse he gets, the more she's aware of it and the more just kind of sad she gets about it. But, you know, she, I think she really, really cares for him mm-hmm. in a way that's kind of necessary to keep her in the story. And I think it's an interesting kind of connection or really difference between these two movies that you can have that sense of, you know, obviously you don't feel the same way about uh, Elijah Wood's character, but it's it's because of what he's doing. Whereas, for instance, Mark Ruffalo, I kind of feel for him, the woman that he's involved in a relationship with, uh, who he clearly really digs and is really happy with, is off chasing their boss and has already had an affair with their boss, had it erased, and is now pursuing it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's also just kind of a sad third. Yeah, I realize that, that that he, you know, she signed off on this, but he's also complicit in the deception too, which which cast another uh, different, you know, kind of cast a character in a slightly different light. Uh, with with Newton, I think it's. You know, because she is very good, you you can kind of forget that that's 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 kind of a stock character too. Sort of the the loyal uh, gal Friday who is uh, you know has to watch her boss uh, uh, throw himself at other women. Kind of a Miss Money Penny, but I think also you can see that, and uh, it's a kind of a private eye trope as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you'd hope for better for Newton as an actress too. There's uh, it doesn't feel like quite as meaty a role as as, uh, she deserves. But um, I guess if you want to see that, you see Westworld. She's like the best thing on that show. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is kind of a thankless role by comparison. I don't think that it's like a major theme uh, in either of these movies. The love triangle and the the person off on the side looking in with longing. It, it's just interesting to me that that there's a parallel there, much like it's interesting to me that there's a parallel between the really petty things that the central business does that people come in and require in addition to uh, the big important things, you know, forgetting the love of your life who has elected to forgive, forget you is a pretty big choice. But you see other people in that office and one of them is holding a bunch of accoutrements for a dog mm-hmm. and, you know, clearly is sad about losing her dog and wants to forget her dog. And there's somebody else in there with, you don't see much of what he's got, but like there's a sports trophy in it. It's a bowling trophy. Yeah. It, it kind of lets you run with that story where, where you will. Exactly. Yeah. There are a lot of ways to interpret it uh, just in terms of what exactly he wants to forget. But you definitely get the impression that, you know, much like some people come to Newton and Jackman to, you know, relive their their lost dead loves. Other people come in like, hey, where to put my keys? And obviously the keys <laughs> thing is a setup, but it is. <laughs> they're not surprised by it either. You know, they've, yeah. they've definitely been through that routine before. And, you know, one guy just wants to hang out with his dog which is a very specific parallel. You know, the man who comes back time and time again to remember his dog versus the woman that's coming to a business to forget her dog. Yeah, I would counsel the woman to not erase the memory of her dog. 
I know, right? It's like, you know, pets, you lose them and it's really sad, but you don't want to, you know, those memories are good memories you want to throw in the garbage. Maybe she had a more complicated relationship with the dog than we realized. Yeah, maybe she uh, maybe there, maybe betrayed the dog in some horrible way. There, yeah. Um, a lot of things peed on that she didn't want peed on and... It's just, I think that in the same way you look at the world building of reminiscence and want a better story in it. Yeah. I, I think it's great that Eternal Sunshine has these little details that invite you to tell your own stories. You yeah. know, why would an old lady want to forget her dog? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but you're going to have to tell that story yourself. Yeah, no, that's uh, uh, that is that is true. I have a feeling that another 20 years from now, one film... <laughs> I think people may be talking, still talking more about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind than Reminiscence. But in terms of availability, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is streaming on most of the usual services. And of course, you can get it on Blu-ray and DVD. Uh, Reminiscence may or may not be in theaters still. It, it, it really, really, really did not do well in theaters. But it can be streamed for the time being on HBO Max. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time for your next picture show, where we catch each other up on films or film-related items that you may want to seek out, too. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you? Well, when I watched this uh, last night, I was not thinking about the thematic resonance between this and the two movies that we just talked about. But there actually is one. So uh, that's an interesting thing. Take it as you will. There's a website called allarts.org that is a kind of a clearinghouse for uh, ideas and, and culture. It's a uh, stemming out of a nonprofit. They've been doing a program this year called Afrofuturism, Blackness Revisualized. And if you search for those words, you'll you'll find this program. Basically, they've got a free online uh, library of Afrofuturist science fiction films. And one of the ones that I've been meaning to check out, I, I first heard about this film. It uh, came out uh, in 2015, and I heard about it maybe a year or two after that out of some film festival but then it just wasn't particularly accessible. It's called Battle Dream Chronicle, and it is the first full-length feature movie to come out of Martinique. So it's an animated film about a computer virus, a kind of intelligent computer virus that takes over the world and forces everybody to fight in these uh, sort of gladiatorial contests. And the people who lose become slaves and their memories are erased, and they lose all track of who they were apart from just being contestants in this perpetually ongoing arena and people level up over time and get better and better weapons. But the AI grants basically ownership of uh, the country represented by a given team to the country that, that wins the match, you know, pitting champions against each other, basically for, for rule over the other country. And as the story takes up, one country has basically conquered nearly the entire world uh, through this this battle dream basically this synthetic space uh, where people fight each other and as a result most of the people in the world don't remember anything except being slaves it's not insignificant that virtually all of the characters are black that you know this is an afrofuturist world and that they're trying to reclaim their sense of who they are they're trying to reclaim their pride and and their lives and their identities 
it's an action movie. It's a movie that spends a lot of time in the arena on these contests of collect the keys, basically, on on strategy and the kind of superpowers where you yell the name of the thing that you're about to activate, and uh, then it activates and, and throws frap at somebody else. And the animation style is very distinctive. It reminds me a lot of uh, movies like uh, Kirikou and the Sorceress or Fantastic Planet, you know, French films with very mannered and stylized animation that's not always the most expressive, but that's kind of part of a fairy tale storytelling tradition. If you look up stills of this movie, they definitely do not do justice to what the animation looks like in motion, um, which is kind of this smooth gimbaled CGI with an overlay that makes it look a little more hand painted. It, again, is very distinctive and it's not going to be for all tastes. It's not necessarily going to be pacing wise or story wise or visually to the taste of people who grew up on Pixar films. But as this movie builds, as these Characters who are very, very internal, who are not very expressive externally, go just deeper and deeper into what they want and what's blocking them from getting it. The emotions of the story get really surprisingly large and moving. And just the story just kind of gets more and more symbolic in terms of what's at stake. So, you know, it's not a movie that you're going to come away from thinking that was better than a Pixar movie. It's a movie that animation buffs, I think, should be aware of and interested in exploring, you know, kind of the the unique voice of this story. And, you know, just anything to get more and varied Afrofuturist worlds out there, because they just tend to be so distinctly textured and mm-hmm. so like unfamiliar to a certain kind of western storytelling trained eye so uh battle dream chronicles it's streaming online for free at allarts.org um and again if you just look it up under afrofuturism blackness revisualized or battle dream chronicle uh you'll find it streaming free at the website i believe through the end of 2021 nice well yeah i think um criterion channel did a huge afrofuturism retro within the last year or so and i i I did not see those films but uh very interesting does seem to be a lot of renewed enthusiasm for checking those movies out so uh maybe people people should do it especially if they they have to they don't have to pay anything they should give it a shot yeah i agree with you i haven't dug into the rest of the collection there are a lot of short films a lot of kind of uh, amateurly made films but there are a couple of other features there from other countries and i really want to make the time to to look into them at some point uh, all of the rest of them are live action. Scott, what about you? With the uh, war in Afghanistan finally coming to an end uh, after almost 20 years, you know, one as a cinephile then starts to think, what are the what are the films about Afghanistan? What are the major films? And uh, there are so few, <laughs> you know, a fittingly few for, for a war that was started with great enthusiasm and ended uh, with great drama and controversy uh but that had a very very long stretch in which uh neglect would be kind of the word you'd use to describe the the interest level from this country in, in this war that we're actively engaged in for as long as we were um and so of course you know it doesn't have its apocalypse now it doesn't have its platoon you know hollywood other than a film like whiskey tango foxtrot <laughs> which is not really just not about afghanistan at all um but more about tina Fey's character being in afghanistan i mean it really just ignored it completely but there is one film one documentary that i think sort of perfectly summarizes the whole 
experience, and that's Restrepo. Um, this is Restrepo's documentary by two photojournalists, uh, Tim Hetherington and Sebastian Younger. Tim Hetherington ended up losing his life a year after Restrepo came out. He 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 was was killed by shrapnel in, in uh, Libya during their civil war. Uh, but he was a wartime photographer. These these guys they embedded with an army platoon that was stationed in the Karangal valley in eastern afghanistan which at the time was the most dangerous outpost in the u.s military uh this is heavily this is you know mountainous territory uh um you know heavily controlled by the taliban by insurgent forces uh, very hard for for to make any inroads at all but that's what they were there to do and and uh the name restrepo refers to this outpost, this advanced outpost that they were trying to establish, or that they did establish uh, a little deeper into enemy territory. Uh, and they named it for a fallen medic na uh, named Juan, Juan Restrepo. And this was their major achievement. They, this is a 15-month 15, 15 deployment for these these men uh you know and they went out at night and they dug and they dug and they and they built this this encampment that, that they had really designed you know which was tactically to the positive for them and in kind of a, a middle fingered finger to the enemy but it, and of course also put them in harm's way they're all, all like fish in a barrel and and there was something just so profoundly metaphorical i guess about them establishing this place that could not be further from 9-11 or for whatever reason we were doing in afghanistan where they're basically target practice <laughs> for their enemies where there there doesn't seem to be any real purpose and that the advancement they make is make is really to make this place this the, which which in 2010 the film informs us at the end was ultimately the u.s military pulled back from that area altogether and it just reminded me of just almost like how this place that that these elders and these goat herders and farmers had lived basically the same way for centuries, you know, they're not going anywhere. And Restrepo itself, and this whole in American America's presence in the area, it's like the like this like a sandcastle that kind of gets eaten up by the tide, and it kind of feels that way when you watch the movie. But then you also get a sense of of how profound and disturbing and affecting this experience is for the actual men who are out there fighting it, who are, who are taking fire every day, who have seen people that they care a lot die or be seriously wounded and, and uh, you know, the, the, the nightmares they're going to, they're going to take away from all of that. And it's just such a, it's a kind of a stunning movie to watch now. It was always great. It was always great. And it won, I think it won the grand jury prize at Sundance. It was well liked at the time. But I think now it, it feels like so much the defining film of Afghanistan, uh, the war in Afghanistan. And I, I think it's a good time, if you haven't seen it already, uh, to check it out, uh, Restrepo. Do you think that'll change? Do you think we'll get more films about Afghanistan in the future? Maybe. I mean, I think I think, I think mean, it always helps. I, I think there's a little bit more of an impulse to make films about wars, you know, after they're completed. And, and I think the impact of that 20 year excursion you know the the amount of uh in investment that was made in, in that war to, to absolutely no positive end i mean that that, that that's going to stick around for a while i think uh, um you know in in the kind of 
corruption and the and uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that you can explore in that story. So maybe so, but 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 while it was going on, you, you couldn't even get a headline. How many? I mean, you you, you would go years without hearing much of anything about Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, I mean, for which sure. is shameful. I mean, this, there was a real war. I mean, it wasn't like there was no pause in that war. There was it was war for 20 years. Crazy. Yeah. I think there's also because of the drama of of the way things ended, like mm-hmm. that gives filmmakers a reason to return to it. There is that feeling of, you know, America's Americans don't want to know what's being done in their name. They mm-hmm. they don't want the downer stories when the downer stories are always the same. But there's a a dramatic ending for any movie now. You yeah. know, not just in the footage of of the departure from Afghanistan, but in talking about what went into it and what the response was and what came next. And also the sense that we that we just missed a story. We we missed some big stories. <laughs> you know, there was a, there's a story there about about corruption, especially that that within within both the U.S. military and within Afghanistan that was not being fully told, uh, and that made itself extremely obvious. <laughs> you know, in, in the in the chaotic final days of the war. Anyway, Restrepo is, I think, a good a good start uh, if you want to get that feeling of what it was like to have boots on the ground, um, and uh, that's that's rentable, I guess, on Apple TV. I, I don't think it's rentable anywhere else, which is strange, but uh, that's how I was able to revisit it. Uh, Keith, what about you? I had an occasion. I read a piece for GQ, sort of like a, qu- a quick guide to, to Tony Lung movies. Uh, given that that I think you know, for a lot of a lot of viewers, uh, uh, Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings might be the first time they've seen Tony Lung. What what of what of our great movie stars uh, oh, yeah. in a movie? It just has not really done any uh, fil- Hollywood films. Closest you could say was something like like um, Ang Lee's uh, Last Caution. Of course, a Hero had a big crossover uh, audience here when it was released in 2004. Uh, so I, you know, it was pretty easy for me to write. And I know these movies pretty well, but the, the big one I had not seen, a uh, big blind spot, uh, was uh, Flowers of Shanghai, the Ho Shao oh, wow, Shen really? film from 1998 in which Lung, it's, it's um, you know, it's not really a central character to it, but Lung plays a major role where it is set in the sort of the uh, so-called flower houses of late 19th century Shanghai, these sort of high-end, you know, may as well call them brothels uh, uh, that existed in, in, in some of the more colonized areas. And it is, you know, Ho is not a director I've seen a lot of. I definitely need to check out more. But the style, like doing these very immersive, long takes mm-hmm. uh, that just kind of let you soak in the atmosphere. It's a very sensuous film. I mean, it's, you know, it's a film in which characters are constantly drinking and eating and smoking and smoking opium. I mean, you can almost like, you know, uh, you know, smell the atmosphere. Um of it, and it's a very seductive, beautiful world, and and you kind of until you look beneath the surface of things and realize how much you know the these are these are women who are, are essentially have been enslaved uh, since they were, were children, and and then these relationships that they between patrons and, and courtesans is uh, very strange and uneven, and and, and often quite. Tortured, and and that's really where uh, Lung's character uh, comes comes in. Who, you know, has is with one uh, flower flower girl um, and has eyes for another, but that means the initial one will, will lose all her patronage, and it, it's all very complicated. And it's played out in a very you know a very understated style as 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 the as these films are, but but you really get a sense of what what this 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 kind of lost world that's kind of you know beautiful and awful at the same time. Um, I thought it was a remarkable film. I was I was glad to catch up with it. 
It yeah, is I, it is streaming on Criterion and also available on Criterion Blu-ray, which is a big plus because uh, the previous DVD edition was one of the, one of those that Wellspring oh, sure. uh, put out. Wellspring put out notoriously crappy DVDs of of some of the best international cinema the, uh, <laughs> around, and at least you can see them. You I mean, know, before, but but as far as Shanghai, you really need to see it in as good a quality as possible because i mean it's one of the most beautiful films i've ever seen oh yeah it's just gorgeous uh, uh, yeah and, and uh, yeah and i think and i think once you get get kind of attuned to ho shao shen's way of directing and the pace of his movies uh, um there's kind of you can really get kind of wrapped up in them and that, that's a great one to start with uh flowers of shanghai yeah i've seen the assassin before and now i need to go back and yeah see. that's a good that's a good starter ho shao shen too but but some of the big ones like the like you know puppet master so, and, puppet, puppet master pretty hard to find you know yeah 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 it's unfortunate because he was you know i mean there was a time when he was considered when he seemed to be like the consensus best director in the world or whatever people were really into him but yeah, well, the the issue of availability is something that we uh, intend to uh, take up very soon. But for now, uh, you know, these all sound like films that people should be checking out. And that's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. We have a special episode planned for September 21st. Tasha, what do we have on tap? Well, as I said earlier, there are a lot of different movies that we could have paired with Reminiscence, which draws from a lot of different sci-fi influences, but the most obvious title has been unavailable to watch on streaming for years now. Catherine Bigelow's 1995 thriller Strange Days is also about a futuristic device that sells clients' life experiences, but here they're black market recordings that are pushed on buyers like drugs. When one of those recordings hints at answers surrounding a mysterious death that means a lot to the community, the stakes for the film's outcast characters get even higher. Back in 1995, Bigelow and her collaborators, including screenwriters James Cameron and Jay Cox, and a cast led by Angela Bassett and Ray Fiennes, were inspired by the then-nascent rise of digital photography and personal minicams. We want to talk about the future they envisioned, while also taking a side trip to discuss other films that haven't made the transition to streaming. Please join us for this one-off special episode, and then we'll return with the start of another pairing the week after that. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Reminiscence, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith Phipps. Uh, I'm a freelance writer. You can follow my work via my Twitter feed at kphipps3000. You can look for me at places like GQ, The Ringer, TV Guide, uh, Polygon, uh, Vulture. You know, I'm as I often say, I am all over the place so again that's that's kfips 3000 on twitter tasha how about you i'm the film and tv editor at polygon.com you can find me on twitter at tasha robinson scott uh, you can find me on twitter at, at scott underscore tobias and you can find my work in the new york times vulture uh guardian washington post other fine publications i'm also the editor-in-chief of oscilloscope's musings blog uh our absent co-host genevieve koski is the senior tv editor at vulture uh, you can find her uh, sometimes at Genevieve Kosky on Twitter. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at nextpicturepod. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. And please also consider rating and reviewing us, which will help others find your favorite movie podcast. 
Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Hey,